0: Hey, biocompatibility podcasters, welcome to our new episode. Episode seven, I think, Don. Yes,
1: where we attempt to demystify ISO 10993 part 18, to some extent, at least.
0: Exactly, and I think, um, Don I wanted to give a little intro, we, um, we think we'll start doing this for new episodes, we'll see how it goes, but this is probably our first A-list biocompatibility ex- expert guest, don't you think? Ted
1: would be an A-lister. Would, he's an A-lister, yes, I would say
0: he's so. an A-lister in the world of biocompatibility. So Ted Heisey joins us for this episode. He is um, the convener of ISO 10993 Part 18. For you, those of you that might not know Ted, it's a fun episode. We, we get through a lot of information. This one's a little longer than our other episodes.
1: It is. We're a little long-winded, but it's a long-winded topic. So um, I think it right. deserves the the time that we gave it. And like you said, I think this is uh, valuable information. And, and I will note that we should probably uh, steer clear of ranking guests that we have on our... Uh, we might not get guests to come back, but I could <laughs> Probably. <hear them.
0: laughs> From now on, everyone's an A-lister. Let's just go with that. <laughs> <laughs> there we go.
1: Everybody's on the list.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you enjoy this episode with Ted Heisey. If you want to reach Ted. You can find him on LinkedIn as well as he works for Med Institute and I know Ted does some consulting of his own as well if you're looking for an expert to help you. He's a great resource as well as, of course, NAMSA, but uh, please enjoy this episode and we'd love to hear your feedback. Definitely. And
1: uh, like she said, hopefully everybody enjoys.
2: Welcome to Biocompatibility the first-ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode.
0: Welcome, everyone, to Chatability. We are in, I believe, episode six or seven. I'm starting to lose count, Don, which I think is kind of fun because we actually have enough now. We, we have more than two episodes.
1: It's a good sign. It's a sign of, uh, well, I was going to say success, but just a sign that we did something. So. A sign
0: that we're doing something. <laughs> we, we continue to keep doing it. And we've also tricked another guest into joining us today, so we're very excited to have Dr. Ted Heisey join us today. Ted, welcome to Biocom Chatability.
1: We we get the uh, opportunity to uh, not only have a guest out from outside of NAMSA, but uh, also for me to be present with our guest, so that we're actually, you know, again sitting face to face with someone, which we've done that before, but it's always been NAMSA people, so. Now it's somebody outside our NAMSA home uh, that we can talk to.
0: Right. Well, so welcome. Thanks,
2: Sherry. Thanks, Don. I appreciate the invite and the opportunity to chat with you.
0: And you don't have to say if you are, or you can lie to make us feel better. But have you had an opportunity to listen to BioCom Chatability?
2: I have. I think I've listened to all of your episodes that have been put out so far. I've enjoyed it.
0: Oh, excellent. So you're listener number three that's not related to Don or I. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. See, and I, I've been,
1: so far I've been very hesitant to say anything about the evaluation that's why I keep stumbling over uh success or things like that I just leave the evaluation up to others so and, right. and we'll just continue to do what we do right? and we yeah. so we've, had, we've had more than one person now say that you know it's been beneficial and they enjoyed it and and uh as long as you like biocomp I think uh there's some some value to it in my own personal opinion. So I've over-evaluated.
0: <laughs> we'll, we'll keep doing it as long as they allow us, whoever they is um, right. at yeah. this point. So, so anyway, I'll give Ted, Ted, we'll give you a little introduction. I'm, I'm guessing a lot of the folks that listen to BioCom Chattability might be familiar or recognize your name or have heard you speak somewhere over the years. So uh, Ted Heisey has been over 25 years of experience in regulatory and clinical affairs He's the vice president of regulatory and clinical services at Med Institute in Indiana, and he leads efforts to develop scientific, scientifically robust regulatory and clinical study strategies. And he also has a real expertise when it comes to ISO 10993, heart 18, currently is the convener of the working group 14 from TC 194 of ISO. So he's really responsible for helping to get out this new ISO 10993 document, uh, Part 18. So if you haven't guessed yet as a listener what our topic is today, we're going to be talking about 10993 Part 18 and chemical characterization, and it's part of the evaluation process. So, Ted, anything you want to add to my rather unstructured and (laughs) unofficial introduction of you?
2: Oh, not much, Sherry. I guess I would just say my... My formal training is actually in analytical chemistry, and I've been in regulatory science work for about twenty-five years without using my chemistry training in of it. And so, the opportunity to take advantage of that background over the last six, eight years in this particular project has been a nice fit, I guess.
1: So, it's a novel concept to talk to a chemist about chemical characterization. So, it is. <laughs> We've we maybe uh, have had some success there, and uh, uh, having Ted uh, help us through this podcast uh, episode regarding characterization, and certainly I I would say uh, it's definitely timely in terms of a new version of the standard getting put out there. I think we're you know still while we are still dealing with the original version of Part 18 from 2005, and now with the new version of Part One, placing even more emphasis on. Chemical characterization as a concept in the evaluation process for medical devices—it it certainly is warranted to have discussions. We, when we were scheduling this, Sherry and I were wondering, okay, what should we talk about in what context? Because we weren't sure if the standard was going to be officially 100% released, partially released, and so we're we're in the partially released. I'll say. I mean, it's definitely an FDIS, but it's not a a published FDIS as of the last time I checked, anyways, which was I think last. But certainly, like I say, I, in my opinion, the standard definitely needed to be updated to work together with the new part one and then eventually work together with the new part 17 that's still under development as well. And it's the original version of that standard. Likewise. So, uh, you know, it would have been nice for all three of these to come out simultaneously. But my understanding of ISO committees, that's next to impossible
0: to accomplish <laughs> that. So... Uh, that may have been something short, just shy of a miracle. Yes, yes I'm thinking. Yes,
1: so uh, but we'll take what we can get when this comes out, and uh, and hence the reason that we're we're talking about it today. One of the reasons, anyways.
0: Excellent. Yeah, you mentioned so because we're a podcast, and ideally this recording is going to be out there in infamy, right? So <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll mention that it is uh, late October of 2019. When we're doing this recording, so as of today that is our our current situation with part 18 and um, where the document is is standing currently. but there's uh, certainly enough in that Fdis that I think we can be hopeful or or we can talk about it to to whatever extent we feel comfortable knowing that at the last minute there's certainly something subject to change, but not likely. Is that accurate? assumption we can go through today's conversation with
2: no i think you're right on sherry and i guess i would say that in fact there are no technical changes allowed when if this is transitioned into the international the only changes that are accepted at that point are are editorial or corrections of errors
0: right okay
1: and i i so, can say too uh, i've had regulators already quoting so uh Those regulators that are aware of it, have copy of it, have made note that, you know, there's enough people out there with copies of it that we might consider following it already. But that's incredibly unofficial type talk. So, but certainly there seems to be enough knowledge of the FDIS even as of October 28th, 2019.
0: (laughs) Right. So, Current status—that's where we are—and I think maybe what a great place to start is possibly highlighting some of the the most significant changes. I know the length of the document is is a big one, right? There's a lot more to the new one, but maybe maybe Ted, you could help listeners understand the difference between chemical and material information versus chemical analytical testing, uh, which I think is is one of the the things that that I think is a highlight. Of understanding this the changes in this document.
2: Absolutely, Sherry, I, I think you're exactly right that the distinction between chemical information and analytical testing is one of the important changes in the new document. The current standard, the 2005 edition does indicate that testing is not always necessary, but it's really difficult to get that information out of it kind of read different parts of it, put them together, and make some inferences. And in the rewrite, we tried to make it very clear for some settings and some devices, it may not be necessary to do testing. The available information, perhaps a compositional listing of what's in the product and information on what's applied to it during processing, uh, is, may be sufficient to provide or support for a, an adequate risk assessment of a particular device.
1: It certainly, uh, I think I, I mean, that clarification, I think, mm-hmm. is going to be definitely incredibly important to the, the standard. And, and I hope that both from the people that are trying to use or the techniques, the, the logic that's in the standard, are able to do that from both that aspect of a, a non-testing point of view as well as when needed a testing point of view. And, and I think that's, like, like you just said, one of the key relationships that gets drawn in this rewrite of part 18, as well as part one, where it talks about, you know, characterizing what you know about your material and your processes versus the need to actually do an analytical test because you have information or some questions that remain unanswered.
2: Yeah, and it's not really spelled out as such in the standard, but the chemical information really is relevant to systemic endpoints in the biological system. And so when you think about Mm -hmm. devices that have maybe only surface contact, applicability of toxicological risk assessment of those chemicals is really pretty marginal. Yeah. So those are not systemically administered or exposed to the patient for the, for the most part. Right.
1: Yeah. I, and I'm sure you could always find exceptions to every rule like that. But it, I, I would think for most of the devices that we're talking about, it, it would be fairly rare that uh, that you'd be worried about systemic first, like a surface contacting device, which I guess I think also speaks to one of the, maybe the challenges that I've always seen in terms of Part 18 and its use from a testing scenario, from an analytical testing scenario, is right away linking it to part 17 and part one to say, okay, if I do this testing, if I do characterization testing because I feel I need to, then how can I effectively use that data by its, like what endpoints do I necessarily directly, most directly set myself up to evaluate? And I, you know, it's always been primarily systemic talks. Genotox, carcinogenicity are kind of like the, bi- the big ticket items. And, and again, I, there's probably even exceptions to that, though, depending on what your situation is. You know, if you have a, you know, a situation where you're trying to show that you're equivalent in terms of extractables to something yep. previously, then I th- my thought is there. And again, there's always some gray areas around this. But my, my <laughs> thought there is, is that you can potentially do a lot more or address a lot more in that comparison type situation than you can saying with a brand new device today that you're just decided that you're going to do chemical characterization testing on um, without necessarily a plan for why.
0: So the interesting points, and so one of the things I want to circle back on here is that, so I've heard both of you say number one, so that column part one that says physical chemical testing or physical chemical information, sorry, let me get the words right. Is not equal testing, so that's not what that column means. Which is my understanding. It means you have to have some physical chemical information. That's correct, Cherry. You both, yeah, you're both kind of making that statement. And then the the second part of this that that I want to maybe flush out a little bit more here is something that you know, Don and I, when we're working with um, customers, or even you know, our internal technical salespeople or our salespeople, is we're We're always trying to to focus on the why. So, for example, when a customer comes to a NAMSA and says, I need to do a chemical characterization program, and if I happen to get involved for one reason or another, almost my first question is, why are we performing this testing? What has it led us here to believe we need this testing? Is that um, kind of also what you all are saying? Is that, you know, that why is really critical to designing this program?
1: I mean, I would say, yeah, especially if a person's already made the decision that what there d- feels like a testing scenario, because the why may reveal that they don't need testing rather than they need to do a better job at determining or collecting this information first. And then ascertain whether they actually need to do testing.
0: And, and again, I think that speaks. So how to how does line. one do that? So here here's my here's my challenge to both of you is so how does one do that and how does one teach our customers or or folks out there to make that decision? And I know this may be so I've totally already jumped off script and off <laughs> our outline, which is gonna happen. Sorry, Don knows me well enough, knows this is gonna happen, Ted. But but I do think this is an interesting challenge and We'll get into certainly more meat of the document, but I but I'd like to to flush this out a little bit if if we could. And Ted, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
2: No, it, it's a great question, Cherry. My view is that any consideration of whether or not testing is needed, particularly if one wants to make a case that testing is not needed, should be based in the best possible science. Yeah. It really needs to stem from a careful consideration of the information that's available. What do you know about the materials and their composition? What do you know about how the materials been, have and the devices have been used in the past and how they've performed? And how can you use that information to show suitability of the materials and the device with respect to the important endpoints of interest in the biological evaluation? Sure. And I think in addition to being that's having a need for really sound science that type of evaluation needs to have regulatory experience brought in to on the discussion because really the important objective is to provide evidence that's going to allow regulatory reviewers to reach a decision that they, so in the case of the FDA a reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness and that's not an absolute assurance of effectiveness and safety but it's a reasonable assurance.
0: Yeah so the the part of the biological evaluation plan so to speak as i think as it's referred to in part 1 is this discussion right this what you're calling you know a, a sound science approach to the plan bringing in certainly that regulatory knowledge as part of that documented plan and strategy before you jump into Performing a bunch of tests. Yeah, I think that's correct. Don, you have anything to add on that? Uh, no. Point? I know we've talked about this ad nauseum. So, I mean, <laughs> like that, um. yeah,
1: and, and I think it, in part one, you know, there are some some sentences that that would support this concept that it isn't a testing scenario in every situation. You know, again, it depends on what you know and what you don't know. And then that becomes, you know, part of that gap assessment yeah, uh, that in ISO 10993 Part 1 that would lead you down the path of whether you need additional information of any type, you know, in terms of test data, you know, to fill a gap you find in your knowledge. So, yeah, it, and, and then once you get to that point, I would say, in terms of your evaluation, it, I think it definitely helps you better define your specific answer to what the why is at that point. So you may then reach that conclusion because you've done that assessment of the data that you have and you said, look, there are, you know, five glaring holes in my my knowledge about this device. So maybe I don't yeah. feel I have assurance of safety at this point, or I couldn't establish that. So now how am I going to fill those, you know, those gaps and testing becomes One one consideration to do that. I mean, you can dig deeper. And and I know we were going to talk about challenges in terms of chemical characterization. And I think maybe to start there, a lot of times, especially from my side of the NAMSA side, a lot of times, not being the medical device manufacturer, the digging for information. We're trying to tell our customers need, and the customers are trying. get everything they can to give to us. And sometimes this, that collection of information I think can be a challenge and continues to be a challenge, whether it be from suppliers of materials or in some cases, just knowledge, enough knowledge to know what you're trying to get in terms of information. I think those two things at a high level can present some challenges in that first step of the characterization process when you're trying to yeah. get information. When you get into a situation where you immediately think, well, lawyer is going to stop me from giving getting this information from somebody or something like that then then that presents a roadblock that you might not be able to overcome
2: in every situation i think that's good don and i would add you may i think you make a great point in there in in that when you first develop the plan you don't know how everything's going to turn out and you may get some results that you didn't expect and one of the pieces in part 18 that makes the writing of it a little more challenging is that you may want to use chemical characterization approaches, maybe not a full extractables and leachables study for a risk assessment process, but you may want to use chemical characterization to help identify reasons you may have seen an anomalous result in a biological test, for example, try to understand what was a potential culprit for causing, for example, a cytotox failure. And, and that's, that brings up another
1: right. great point from the standpoint <laughs> that, it, I mean, you open up the scenario to use the standard to answer different types of questions. Yes. And again, that kind of leads into Sherry's point of the why, that with a well-documented plan would justify an approach that maybe seems tailored and less comprehensive because you're trying to answer one question, right. you know in this one study. And you might theorize that it came from chemical X, which is soluble and chemical Y. Therefore, I'm using a very targeted testing strategy just to go after that one entity. And and again, if if that's defined well in a plan that creates that kind of that pathway, that, that logical scientific route to uh, why you did what you did. And uh, I, because certainly I've seen situations where a regulator has looked at once they get to testing uh, situations where they just feel that it's an incomplete set of tests, but they really didn't have any context as to why the testing was actually done in the first place.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we've, we've thrown out a couple of terms that I, I want us to circle back on, and I'm not sure if the new document, I, I know they were defined in, in even the original document, and I'm not sure if the new one is on this, but the We've talked about extractables and I think we've mentioned leachables. And we see commonly these terms being used changeably or incorrectly. So could Ted, can maybe you discuss the difference between extractables and leachables as as far as they're relating to the part 18 and and how we use those terms?
2: Yeah, I'd be glad to. I think that's an important distinction, Sherry. And uh, we were faced basically with a challenge in that. To date, in the rice community, the custom has been to do an extractable study, which would be fairly aggressive conditions, and then a a leachable study, which has often been implemented as uh, fairly mild extraction conditions, which are set up to model clinical situation as well as possible. The problem with that approach is that the terms "extractable" and "leachable have been established in the pharma world for many, many years, and in particularly in the drug packaging container system work. And, and those terms are set up to mean uh, leachables is what comes out in what the patient is exposed to, and extractables are those substances that are drawn out during uh, laboratory conditions and that, and we thought better to better not to create new definitions that differed or di- diverged in in common use for many years and to align with those and just recognize there are some some gaps in the way it can be applied to devices and to expand on that and an indirect contact device generally is going to be a, a fluid pathway and we'll have in terms of its application to the patient, uh, a good number of similarities to a drug container closure system in that the, the fluid that contacts the patient is carrying whatever leaches out of the materials into it. The difficulty comes in with direct contact devices where it is very challenging to actually determine what comes out in clinical use There are are a couple of big reasons for that. The first is that to really do it properly according to how the term is defined, you need to collect uh, biological specimens. If it's a blood-contacting device, you can do blood draws. If it's a tissue-contacting device, you've got to figure out how am I going to determine which tissues to sample and find that that's the the right experimental setup, if you will. Obviously, there are problems or challenges in getting biological specimens from patients. Certainly, if you're involved in a clinical study, you can include consent or blood draws. You're probably not going to get too many patients who are interested in offering up excision of tissues to evaluate <laughs> levels of drugs. In them, and it's very right. understandable. Uh, so, firstly, and there's, there's challenges in getting those samples other piece of it is the analytical challenge. Uh, most analysts will tell you that if you're dealing with biological specimens, that really complicates the analytical process because the, the proteins and other substances that are in biological matrices really typically interfere with the analytical process and entirely new methods have to be developed to deal with those. And they're generally not going to have the sensitivity that you would want after you've done the method development for this type of purpose. So both of those main two reasons serve to make the study of leachables for direct contact devices pretty difficult.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I think when uh, when we present our training sessions about chemical characterization, even today, before the standard is released, you know, the idea of leachables comes up. Um, in terms of uh, you know maybe a qualifier experiment after extractables for medical and and once you get into that direct contact, my always I'm, I'm always sitting there with the quandary uh, okay, what am I going to use to perfectly represent the human body yeah and, and it's like uh, yeah. got me there so it, I, I would say we we spend more time probably testing simulated versus true leachables just because we i mean there are some situations where you can do. You know, if you have a device that's stomach, maybe you go to the United States Pharmacopeia and take the recipe or simulated gastric juices, and you use that as your extraction vehicle. But again, that's a complex matrix, and yeah. if you're looking for a couple chemicals in there, it's going to be hard to always say that you can accurately see around the the matrix that you're looking into. Yeah. So then you get into that whole validation scenario tends to, from a leachable standpoint for a device, be money that is, uh, I mean, for the medical device industry, it's, that it can become real money, let's just say, in terms of expenses. So, um, so yeah, I, yeah, and I, I would say too that the, I mean, the, the vast majority, once it gets to the point of actually doing testing, the vast majority of, of companies are out there saying, you know, I hope this stops at extractables and hopefully we can make a convincing case for whatever our situation may be with extractable data alone because going beyond that sometimes can from what i've seen get fairly complex pretty quickly yep
0: so what are the biggest challenges so so it's it's starting with an extractables study right and this basic concept isn't new from the the 2005 version of the document to today right so it's starting with extractables if you have to do if you decide that you need to do testing, correct?
2: Yes, that that would be the the usual starting point, although the the new standard makes it clear that there's there are a number of ways you can approach the process depending on your device and how it's used and what you already know. But generally an extractable study would be the, the first step if you've reached a decision that testing is needed.
0: Okay. So I think um, th- these aren't as simple as I liked to, to, to try to make them be, or the others try to make them be. So when you're talking about um, challenges in performing the testing for an extractables program, what would what would that look like?
2: So I think Don mentioned the key um, challenges already, and that's the selection of solvents for the extraction process. You guys know very well that in the biological testing world, the solvents are pretty well established, and generally going to use an a- or a saline, and then a vegetable oil of some sort as your polar and your nonpolar solvents. I'm sure you are well aware that you can't put a vegetable oil into an analytical instrument and have your operators operate it because it's just going to ruin the instrument or cause need for Great amount of maintenance and repair, so, right? So there has to be alternatives, and this was actually a, a difficult discussion during development of the document. And in the end, uh, I think the document includes in the informative annex a tabulation solvents of varying degrees of polarity. It does recommend use of a polar and a nonpolar solvent it also similar to part 12 emphasizes that your solvents should not degrade the test article and that if you do you should if they do you should pick a less nonpolar solvent generally it's the nonpolar solvents that are going to degrade the materials so trying to find that right threshold of polarity for extraction is a challenge and uh, my ex- in my experience, regulators are generally going to see some evidence that a, um, a a nonpolar solvent like a hexane, which I think they generally prefer, does degrade the material, and they'll, they'll want to see some evidence to support that, and then that would be used to justify use of a less nonpolar
0: solvent. Interesting. So I had this discussion with one of our chemists when I was in uh, Germany a couple weeks ago. We have a Lab, laboratory now. And he and I was discussing with him and I asked him, I said, how do you define degradation? How do you know that you're degrading the sample? And he said, interestingly enough, he, at least as far as his knowledge, and maybe you can correct us and we'll know more. There's no clear definition of it for medical devices. And I think he mentioned to me in food product, there's a clear definition of what uh, degradation of material is like but that we really don't have that clear definition when it comes to the medical device world. Is that accurate? <laughs> I think it's
2: reasonably accurate. The uh, Yep. There is, I think, mention of swelling of the materials as right. being, so I, I don't think it's limited to degradation per se. I think the, um. the emphasis is more on not uh, substantially changing the test materials, the test article.
1: And I've, I think historically you know going back to the days before part 18 was around people use especially in the united states you you know the wording in the united states pharmacopoeia that would describe you know uh that slight softening or slight deformation of the material would be okay but no real specific indication of what that actually what's slight
0: yeah (laughs) Yeah. all those types of things that yeah
1: yeah and i mean i've had Regulators, I've had this discussion with them and, you know, I'd say, well, how far is too far, uh, basically, you know, right. and, and other things come into play. But it almost started, I think, with like a physical observation that you did something to the test article. And and I guess sometimes the challenge that certainly encountered as well is that you might not see a physical change to the product, but chemically it appears you have done something to it. And then it's just a matter of, okay, what's the difference between a degradation product and an extractable? And that gets kind of mm-hmm. crosses a line there, or a line could get crossed because, we say, that, you know, because I saw a polymer fragment in my, uh, you know, infrared scan of my non volatile residue, that that's an indicator of some level of, you know, unwarranted degradation to the device. Others could say, well, maybe that means that. In, in a potential clinical situation, your materials falling apart and releasing other chemicals or something like that to where it becomes a true extractable. So I, I guess there's that definitely I, that type of evidence that you have to evaluate to determine if you've kind of crossed the line of going too far when it comes to your extraction vehicle in combination with your extraction conditions. Cause certainly the the two can play into each other for sure. And What might be okay at 37 degrees C might not be okay at 50 or 70, depending on what material is in the vehicles.
0: Does the new version, Ted, give us any more guidance on that? Like, is there anything, any more discussion about about that that might help with that decision?
2: No, I don't think there's a whole lot of additional guidance, Sherry. Okay. As Don was indicating, so difficult to really...
0: Right. right.
2: How do you determine whether something has been damaged or degraded in the extraction process.
0: Yeah. The physical modification you have to determine in by being there, right. And observing. And I mean, is it as much as like observing and touching and to that extent, Besides, I know observing, sometimes you can see a color change. Sometimes you can obviously see it breaking up a little bit. What other types of observations are used in this determination?
2: Well, observation of the device itself. Does it look the same as when it went into the extract solvent? Firstly, has it swelled? Has it cracked or crazed? Has it curved or changed shape? So okay. yeah, are all potential indicators. None of them are clear, unmistakable, unequivocal are evidence that something's been degraded, but I think they're part of the evaluation process other would be what does the extract itself look like i mean is it cloudy does it have particulates those could be from degradation or breakdown of the constituents the 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 base material Uh, they could be extraction of material that has maybe solubility limit although i guess i would think that generally speaking if you've reached a solubility limit it just the rest of it's just going to stay in the matrix rather than come out okay. in the extraction solvent
1: and it's it's i mean i've i've seen some situations where laboratories have have stated that they didn't analyze an extract at all because the extract was cloudy and i mean that's certainly maybe one piece of evidence but it'd be nice to have some to substantiate that the cloudiness was again cuz you i mean you have to be careful because the cloudiness could be extracts that are actually valid to investigate a little bit further. I think one other thing that and again there's well there are some limits historically speaking, but I like to look at the NVR on a per device basis, and again it's not written down in that that I'm aware of in part eighteen, even in the new version that says you know x number of milligrams equals degradation but if you have some cloudiness and maybe some what appear to be slight changes to the test article and, you know, you're getting 800 milligrams of NVR per device, then, <laughs> you know, it might be enough information for you to start questioning whether or not you have a vehicle that's just a little bit or, or conditions, a vehicle and or that are a little bit too aggressive for what you're trying to to do in your evaluation of the device. I mean... I always kind of ground myself just back on, again, the more defined situation, United States Pharmacopeia years ago, the 15 milligrams or 600 square centimeter cutoff that it always had in terms of acceptable. There's not a translation of that to medical devices today, but conceptually, I just think about that 15 milligrams and, and that target that USP set back in the day. And again, if I have Fairly sizable device, and I almost have 800 milligrams. I, I either got a lot of extractables mm-hmm. <laughs> issues, or I have some maybe some issues with my extraction conditions. So I should be
2: Yeah, I think other potential aspect is that on the NVR topic, is situation where you may see continued extraction, extracted matter. Yep. Repeatedly over time, and it just never decreases. And you have to think that that's probably breakdown of the base material, and you're just pulling out chunks of the material over time, chunks of the polymer. On, on the threshold from the USP, Donna, mm-hmm. I just have to gripe a little bit, but <laughs> I'm not sure that the basis for that threshold is yeah. well understood.
1: Yeah, I would certainly agree, and I I think my only. My only reason for bringing it up is just conceptually to think about something to give you. A yeah, yeah, it gives you yeah.
0: something. Yeah, What's, it might not be. It's something. What are the numbers?
1: <laughs> yeah, what are the numbers? Because I mean, you could in medical device. I mean, you could literally have you know an NVR of three milligrams and have something from a toxicological perspective that's unacceptable. I mean, it. Yeah. And and so yeah, there's nothing magical about fifteen.
2: For sure, <laughs> that on, I'm aware of. On the <laughs> other hand, you may have something with a hydrophilic coating that gives you yeah three times that on the first extract. Yep, and, and it's not a it's not a safety concern. It's yeah. just the way that the material behaves. Yep, for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was ready to segue into another subject. Did you have another no, comment let's segue, there? let's segue. <laughs> okay. The segue buses well, left. Well. So because I <laughs> I think what what Ted said there is something that is critical that i i i want us to discuss a little bit is that we have to know those things so we have a hydrophilic coating or we have something that we know is going to come off the device in a polar or nonpolar situation or or that could or we have a material that we know is susceptible to degradation in hexane and the message i guess and and my question to you all is how important is it for your laboratory to know all these things before they begin? And and how much can it save you time and maybe energy-wise if you did know these things on the front end?
2: No, it's a, it's a key question, Sherry. And I think that the extent to which you can collect that information about the device and really describe it in a way to provide the foundation for a good assessment is is critical. I'm rambling a little here, but I think the, the the compositional information is important, even if you're going to do testing, because it helps in the selection of the approach to testing. And just one example, I may be jumping ahead on the script here. There's often a question about what reference standard is most appropriate to use for quantitation of extractables. and you're going to want to use something very different from a silicone material than you would from a, from a PBAC or a polyurethane, for example, because the, the way those different related substances behave on the instruments and the way that the, the signal behaves is very different. So you need something in your, your reference standard or set of reference standards that will... Be appropriate for what you expect to see from the device.
0: Yes. Yeah. Don, did you have anything you wanted to add there? Or what about on the assessment endpoint? Like, so if you don't go into this knowing what you're up against and you perform some analyses and then your toxicologist gets all kinds of fun data to analyze, like, what is that like ultimately? And I know we're kind of jumping to part 17 a little bit there, but because that's mostly what this data is going to be used for, what's the effect on the assessment?
1: Yeah, I I mean, certainly, if you don't set up your, if you get to the point in the process where you actually do extractables testing, leachables testing, one or the other or both, and you don't think about the material composition, the right reference standards, so on and so forth, it, it may be hard for a toxicologist to convincingly make an argument that the device is safe based on that data set that you just provided them with, depending on what they're tasked with doing. But again, if they're going after the big hitters for, say, a permanent implantable device, that was being all aspects of systemic toxicity, as well as uh, genotox and or carcinogenicity, you know, they're going to want data that they can rely on trust so that they can make uh, a final conclusion on the safety of the device. And, and if the data are suspect, then certainly any conclusions that you make are going to be suspect as well. So whether that's yep. quantitation limits, whether that's being able to quantitate accurately enough on the, the chemicals that are sitting there um, or a combination of all that, uh, it, 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 can make, it can make life rough for the toxicologist. And, and that's not a fun position to be in um, in terms of talking to a toxicologist with iffy data.
0: Sure. Okay. So I think I have one more kind of technical question I want to talk about because I know that that the new document discusses it, and that's the use and the concept of AET. And I was, I know the A is analytical, and I know the T is threshold, but the E is escaping me. Is there an? <laughs>
1: it's not escaping. Let's try
0: though. <laughs> it doesn't it's not escape. <laughs> analytical escape evaluation. threshold. That's evaluation. pretty funny. Evaluation that makes more sense, right? right. So AET, <laughs> analytical evaluation threshold. And I, and I don't believe this was in the 2005 edition, right? So probably a major change that we're looking at here. You're right.
2: That is a major change. It's a new edition. It's a a concept that was evaluated or developed in, pharma world through PQRI okay. and. Uh, It basically is a way to translate a safety threshold toxicological principles into the analytical testing process. So in the toxicology world, there are various threshold concepts. TTC is one of them, or the threshold of toxicological concern. That's a level at which substances would be considered to have no Below which the substances would be considered to have no appreciable health risk. And there are some exceptions to that. And the, the standard talks about this in particular. Uh, if you have reason to suspect that members of what's called the cohort of concern could be present in the materials, this approach does not work. But otherwise, and given the, the types of materials that are most often used in medical devices, it's a reasonable concept and it, it's based on a fair amount of evidence in the literature that says if you're below this level, you don't have to worry about the toxic of it. And that allows a chemist to calculate a threshold in the analytical process below which the analytes that are revealed on an extractable study don't need to be fied. In other words, they don't have to be assigned an identity based on a uh, reference uh, library su- reference substance library. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I, you know, I'm certainly not even close to being a scientist, so I can, I can pretty much understand it. I'm not going to be calculating these things I know, but I, I think I understand the concept and, and, why we're using it, again, it's helping us get the most useful data that we can for our toxicologists. One side effect I do know is that often it requires a lot of sample at times. And I guess it depends on your your equipment, right? Your instrumentation. Yeah. And the way the device is used, probably, of course.
1: Yeah. And yeah, just like the, your method, your analytical method, it's it's quantitation limits and, and all of that factor and how you did the extraction. And yeah, one way that You know, you can at least attempt to overcome the issue is to concentrate your extraction with sample. But then you still have to have enough extract to avoid the whole supersaturation type issue um, as well. So there's been ways that, you know, people, laboratories, account for that reducing extracts to a small volume so that you concentrate what's in them, assuming that you have a method or controlling release of extractables as you reduce, because you don't want to miss those either. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that you have to watch out for, I think, and in terms of how you set up your test to basically hit the limits so that you need to, to support that AED concept, for sure.
2: I think that's right. I think that's right, Dan. And I would add that in practice, there may... It may not be unusual to have a situation in which the AET is not that different from the actual LOQ of the method, the limit of quantitation. And in fact,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. it's also necessary that your LOQ be low enough that it's at least as low as the AET. So that may require that the concentration step that Don was talking about to be able to achieve that level of sensitivity. Yeah, for sure. So,
1: and again, it kind of speaks to a lot of forethought that has to be in place when you are certainly considering chemical characterization testing of device extracts. I mean, once you get to that point, things start to get real in terms of what you need to know so that you set up an experiment properly. So that you can actually use the data effectively at the end of your experiment, because there's going to be time, money and samples involved and and uh, nobody wants to play around with an experiment that doesn't give them an answer they were hoping that it would provide. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I think in our, in our notes before uh, before this, we compared CYTO to chemical characterization testing and <laughs> chemical characterization certainly is not as scripted as It's CYTO. not a CYTO. <laughs> it's not as
2: that.
0: It's not a sido. That's my bumper sticker. Chemical wow. characterization is not a sido. No, I'm just kidding.
1: It's like that commercial says if you put something on the bumper of your car, it has to mean something. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's meaningful. Let's start selling them. Hashtag characterization is not a sido. Um wow. <laughs>
1: It, 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 depending on where you drive, there might be um, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage fraction of a fraction of a that fraction.
0: What that means. Where, yeah,
2: and, <laughs> and, and you know, like any type of testing in a in a setting where there are a lot of unknowns, there may be times that it's most going to be most effective or efficient to do a little bit of feasibility testing up front and just yep do a do a small experiment to say mm-hmm. what are we what do we get if we approach and is it gonna does it look like it's gonna be fruitful
1: yeah yeah i think too something that just popped into my mind is is with all of the potential uncertainties related to chemical characterization testing you know certainly if one goes down this pathway of collecting test data because a regulator said they needed data of a certain type you know i wouldn't Definitely, I would react to that, but I wouldn't react immediately with testing that they just asked for, because I think there's enough uncertainty out there and enough misunderstanding about terminology that I could see somebody asking for something that they truly didn't intend or really mean, and and then you get headed down a path. Of or, or, no that return.
2: The, or that they meant, and the, the intention yeah. was based on an inadequate understanding of yeah. the, the process. Yep, yep, for sure.
0: Yep, so. yeah it goes back to that, you know, what we were talked about earlier. I've heard there's lots of people that I've talked to when they say that they're getting, you know, they need to do this testing. And so I ask them why, and they say, well, it's required. I'm like, oh, duh. so the definition of required is, is in, you know, is interesting the way folks are interpreting again, that, that table, that, that column in the table in part one, people are interpreting that as testing being required. And I guess if there's one thing that maybe we've, gotten home today that that's not that's not how that's interpreted or never intended to be interpreted that way i guess is a better statement
2: i think that's right sherry and that was reflected in earlier in the discussion when you caught yourself testing and it recognized that it's actually called chemical information
0: yeah yeah correct so i think before we uh we're getting close to i think we've gone through a lot of our topics we've Uncovered a few others along the way, as we knew would happen. But Ted, I wonder if you could kind of circle back and I jumped over it a little bit. What is where's what's our status as of today? Any more information on the the process for the document being published? And um, maybe give us a, an update there before we play a little fun game here.
2: Sure. <laughs> you guys are probably familiar with the process. Some of the listeners may not be. The uh, EFDIS went through a balloting process, and that ended in June of this year. And uh, there were 20 out of 20 favorable votes with no negatives, which means it does go to the publication process. The ISO Central Secretariat carries that out. They implement the comments that came with the ballots, any of them that are editorial, as I mentioned earlier. And that... Edited document will come back to me and the TC secretary to review for uh, any mistakes they have made may have made in the process, and then from there it will go to uh, translation and then publication. So, since it's a an international standard, it has to be published in English and French. So, I, I expect that that will take some more time. I don't I don't anticipate seeing it now until sometime next year. Probably, I'm hoping early in the year, but we'll see.
0: Okay, that's great.
2: Next year being 2020. <laughs> <Right.
0: Yeah. laughs> so if you're listening to this in 2025, it's already been issued. <laughs> Hopefully, right? <laughs> yes.
1: Things have gone horribly wrong if that wasn't the case. Things have gone horribly <laughs> wrong if
0: that's the case. Oh, uh, And to have us still be out there in 2025, wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah. That'd be um, cool. Podcasts will probably be a thing of the fat past by then, too. So nobody's wasting their time with us. <laughs> so our last little business here is a little game that Don and I like to play with guests. We did let our French colleagues off the hook, Don. We're going to have to circle back yeah. with them on that one. They, um, were not really they didn't like our game, or we, we sprung it on them a little we too late. On, Let's put it that way. Up. Yeah, we sprung it on them. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to play a little game of two truths and a lie, which um, if you're not familiar, uh, Chad, I did I do think we prepped you for this, but maybe not. Um, this is where we're we're each going to state two truths and a lie about basically our time in working around medical device, biocompatibility. The other two on the line are going to try to guess which one of those things is a lie. And this certainly is one of those things where the truth is almost funnier than fiction. And that's kind of the way it happens. So who wants to go first today?
1: Don, you want to go first today? I'll go first. I'll go first. Uh, and and I'm, I don't know. I thought mine were kind of lame, but I was, you know, coming up with them when I did. And so I did. So here they are. So one of these is a lie. The other two are true. So first one, I recommended that testing be performed without regard to the recommended ratios in ISO 10993 Part 12, so as extraction testing. So I basically disregarded the ratios in Part 12. Number two, I can't recall ever performing chemical characterization testing of device extracts without a non-polar vehicle. Number three... I've used chemical characterization testing to create a data set to, to support a justification related to GSPR 10.4 of the MB- MDR. So those are my 3. Mm. <laughs> Come on, they're easy. It it's easy.
0: <laughs> is it? Only because I know you're kind of a Part 12 junkie, I'm going to say number 1 that you would never ignore Part 12, but I don't know if that's Careful, right or that's not. That's what I said. <laughs> What did you say? I recommended. I'm I'm still going
1: without regard to the recommended. Without regard,
0: oh, Uh, I'm sticking with it. I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to say that's all about
1: technicalities on on my truths or lies. This is true.
2: (laughs) So I could certainly envision one being true, because I think for chemical characterization, it's not essential to follow those ratios because oh, you're right. It can be made.
0: See, and they
1: all had related notice how they all sort of related to chemical characterization yeah.
2: at, at at the background. And, all and-
0: right. Show off. <laughs> Show off. <laughs> I'm
2: not sure which one is false. Number two was false.
1: Recall ever performing chemical characterization testing of extracts yeah. without a nonpolar vehicle. Respiratory devices um, with humidified uh-huh. air, no drugs Good point. involved. I've definitely recommended that yep. they not use nonpolar there. But why I was doing what I was doing, or at least I thought I did. <laughs> so that was my
2: lie. That was my lie.
0: All right, Ted, you want to go next? You ready?
2: Uh, actually, I hadn't realized I was going to get this. I did hear. Uh, <laughs> I did hear you ask Lisa this, so I should have known it was coming. I, if you want to go first? I'm still working on mine.
0: Okay. Wait okay. And then I'll
2: go third. If that's alright.
0: Okay. Okay. So number one is I once had a customer. Fail material-mediated pyrogen because they use gelatin in their device. Number two, had a customer, they failed CYTO because they used gelatin in their device. And number three, I once had a customer 10K rejected by the FDA. They used a plant-based extract and tried to claim physical instead of a chemical mode of action.
2: I think I got a pretty good guess. Ted, you? I'm going to guess number two. I was going with two as well.
0: Number two was the lie. Yes. Um, apparently, gelatin might could pass cyto, but not material mediated pyrogen, just for the record.
1: And the, and the questions were all rooted in your experience, anyhow. So it, it doesn't matter if, you know. True. So, anyways, you said I want salt. So, technically, you could have. <laughs> Yeah, something that nobody else has seen before. <laughs> this is and true, no. but
0: that likely is not going to come from me. I mean, uh, the folks that are around this table here, that's likely not coming from me. Just saying.
2: <laughs> okay, I'm ready.
0: Okay, excellent. Good okay. job on the spur of the moment there.
2: Number one, the uh, process of revising 10993 18 was pretty straightforward because everyone had views on how it should be done. Uh, Number two, I did my first chemical characterization study in 2008. And number three, it's unclear whether Asian countries are going to be accepting chemical characterization as a substitute for any other types of biological evaluated testing. Hmm. I know
0: what my answer is, sure.
2: Uh. You on the spot.
0: I think I know what mine is too, simply because it's a lot of people with a lot of different thoughts. And I'm going to say part, I'm going to say number one is yeah. the lie. Yeah. I'm thinking he lied first.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you, right. you, you
0: know
2: enough about the standards development <laughs> process to, to recognize that one right off the bat.
0: We we can all be hopeful. I think, you know, when Don talks about part one in our trainings, when we do that, and he talks about part one, he, you know, makes the kind of tongue-in-cheek comment. And there we created part one so the whole world would get along in perfect harmony. And obviously,
1: <laughs> <China speaks laughs> it's to the th- same one. The, the, the third, yeah. the third uh, truth or lie that said uh, that was ah. true. Asian countries. You know? yeah. yeah.
0: Very. And it, that'll be interesting to see that how that flushes out. I think we've seen it's made there based on conversations we have with our customers and, and our colleagues in those countries. But it's going to be really interesting how that whole thing works itself out.
2: And CMDE has just recently released it on uh, extractable studies or leachables, they call it. I think they mean extractables and it's <laughs> for targeted extractables, leachables. Okay. So it'd be like DEHP, for example. Right. Right. Yeah. That one's really the easier of the two. <laughs> it is. The, the screening is the one that it causes all the problems. So yeah. it's not clear how they're going to land on that particular.
0: Well, this has been a lot of fun. Y- y'all have any final thoughts on anything we might've missed or something I skipped over key points we wanted to discuss? I, I think this has been amazing. We, we certainly have uh, had a lot to talk about. We could probably talk for another hour or two, but in, you know, try to be respectful of Ted's time. We won't, we won't keep him. So any final thoughts?
1: I, I, I think from my point of view, it's just understand why you're even attacking this subject when you, when you get there, whether it be the new standard, the current standard, whatever, know why you're doing what you're doing so that it works well for you as best it can.
2: No, I would agree. I think we could certainly go into greater depth on any number of topics in this area, but in the amount of time that we have, I think that was a pretty good coverage.
0: Good. Excellent. Well, I appreciate both of your time. For any listeners that want to have more information, um, supporting information, and other materials on Part 18, you can go to slash Part 18. And we have additional resources there on our website that we'll be refreshing. And as soon as this uh, new document comes out, uh, we'll have that information on there as well. So thank you all for joining us. Ted, a special thank you to you for your time today. Uh, we know you're busy and and uh, everybody's asking you to talk about this. So we, we're certainly appreciative that you took the time with us today.
2: My pleasure, Sherry.
0: All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next time.
2: Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy BioConchattability, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com resources podcast.